Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Thank you for joining us today on the BIOS podcast. We are absolutely thrilled to welcome Vijay Kustra, professor at Harvard Medical School and co-director of the Center for Infection and Immunity at Brigham Research Institute to the show. Vijay, thank you once again for joining us. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Drew Yashar. Let's kick things off. Vijay, can you rewind the clock and please share your background and career overview with us? So I was born in India and I studied uh, veterinary medicine and went to Australia to do my PhD and additional training in veterinary medicine. And I got very interested and fascinated by immunology and the immune system was just beginning to be always not discovered, but making inroads into tumors. In fact, my PhD was in tumor immunology. And from Australia, I came to United States to do a postdoc and initially as a Fogarty fellow at NIH and where I stayed for just a year. And I made my way to Harvard as a postdoc and never made it out. In fact, I grew up from letter to letter and uh, ultimately in becoming professor and a chair professor at Harvard Medical School and at the Brigham Women's Hospital. And a phenomenal path that is. Would you mind if I ask what brought you to bio? Just sort of a little bit of that personal story as well. It's really interesting. When I was growing up as a kid, we had uh, this a poster on the wall. My, uh, my dad was a professor and he had a poster on the wall where he was a picture of Joseph Lister and Joseph Lister was treating patients. I asked him, who is this guy and what is he doing? He says, this is Joseph Lister. And he discovered that if you use carbolic acid on treating wounds that you will not develop gangrenes and the wounds heal better. And this was the first antiseptic that he used. And he says, he didn't just treat one person by his discovery. He helped treat millions of people who needed it. And that really got me interested in uh, science and biology that you could actually make a difference in not just one person or just family. You could actually affect millions of people by actually finding something like carbolic acid for treatment of wounds. That's an absolutely incredible genesis. I'd, I'd love to build on that and ask. To help our audience get a grasp of the many experiences throughout your career, what has been your North Star? The common thread, if you will, that ties your work together? Initially, after being trained as a vet and getting my feet wet as a vet and then a pathologist, identifying how diseases are initiated and what the pathogens do, how the immune system tries to protect you against invading pathogens. And I got really fascinated by how immune system works. And one of the most interesting features of the immune system is, and this is the first question I asked my immunology teacher. I said, you know, it's very interesting is that the, if you have an invading pathogen, you mount an immune response and you clear the pathogen and everything is fine. But why don't we attack our own cells? our own tissues, our own body. 
And how would, are we protected from our immune system from really killing our own cells? It was really interesting. And he says, it's self-tolerance. We are tolerant to our own self. That actually became guiding principles is that how do we maintain self-tolerance to the, our own antigens? And ultimately, if something goes awry and you have the horror autotoxicus, which uh, Paul Ehrlich talked about, is that when the immune system is attacking yourself, those are your autoimmune diseases. And then you have tumors where you have the self transforming into tumor cells, but your immune system doesn't work. It's highly tolerized immune system. So it became as a guiding principles to figure out how do you really maintain self-tolerance and what's the guiding principle behind it. And that kept me going all these years. Something we're excited to dive further into and learn more about as we transition and Drew starts diving into our first topic on your lab and the, your advancements in T-cell differentiation research. Drew? Thanks so much, Chris. And thank you again, Vijay, for joining us. Super excited to kick things off here with our first topic. Really starting with an overview here, I mean, over the past decade, the immunology field has advanced at an unprecedented speed with many new innovations reaching the clinic, impacting patients across various autoimmune diseases, chronic viral infections, cancer, among other fields with many more to come. As we think about the brink of many new therapies beginning to truly realize patient impact and being a immunology pioneer yourself, Vijay, We'd love to learn more about the development of the field and how it progressed from someone on the inside, really. Revolutionizing science as we know it, can you tell us more about the storied history of immunology? Maybe could we, could we start with briefly where the field started and, and when? Yeah, actually the field of immunology, if you look at it, is, is obviously age old. In fact, in the Western world, we talk about that a smallpox vaccination, and then if you get exposed to a disease once, you are immune to it. And what are the cells? I mean, the practice has been there in China and India even before that. So we already knew that if you're exposed to an infection, you develop immune to, immune to it. What are the cells? Who, who does it? And can we actually do it better? And that gave rise to all the vaccinations we have now. But in fact, the reason there has been this huge revolution in last 20 years is this huge emphasis on the identifying the molecular basis for the immune system. In fact, there's a phenomena. Well, you get infected, you get immune to it, but what are the cells that are doing it? That was the initial phase. We identified the cells. Then the second phase was that the, oh, what are the molecules doing? And we identified all the antibodies, right? Then how do the antibody producing cells get help? And you identified all these molecules and cytokines. But I think really the boost was where we could actually take a phenomena that was out there and we could actually give it in a molecular terms that this is what's happening to the cellular level and these cells are expanding and these cells are producing antibodies, and these are the molecules that are helping these antibody producing cells to get there. So that is where the field actually really evolved. And actually it, as you put it yourself, it's it has been revolutionizing, not only immunology, but other fields as well. Really appreciate the overview and, and the broad impact of 
where the field has evolved and some of the, the key milestones in it itself. I'm curious, Vijay, as someone who has been in the field for so long, taking it back a second, what were some of the challenges you faced when really you first started focusing on immunologic diseases? You know, it was actually really interesting. It was as if I was working in dark. I'm feeling something and we know it's real, but we couldn't figure out what was it, who is talking to whom, and we couldn't give it precise mechanistic understanding that we know that in tumors, there are these cells that are suppressing immune system and the effect of these cells can't clear the tumor, but why? We couldn't give the precise role to the cells, to the molecules, to the mechanisms. It, it felt like when I was doing PhD, it felt like I was in dark. And when the molecular biology came in 20 years ago, in late eighties, early nineties, we started actually giving the role to the molecule. We could identify that we could clone them. And we could actually say that, that if this is the sequence, it's forming this molecule and this molecule does exactly the phenomena that I have been observing in dark before. So the, one of the biggest challenges was that when I was doing a PhD, I had no idea what we we're doing. We had no precision. We had no molecular understanding. PCR wasn't invented. So it was literally an area when it was actually a place when it felt like we we're working in dark. That's a really fascinating perspective. I mean, even taking it back prior to PCR being invented, looking at the space in that perspective, now fast forwarding through your career, I'd be really curious how you saw this space evolve itself. And briefly for a little bit, I mean, could you really describe maybe some of the lights that happened during your career, maybe potentially just some of the critical advances we've made along the way just throughout your career that brought us to today? Yeah, in fact, as I said that, we developed assays to identify cells, CD4, CD8, B cells, myeloid cells. We knew they were there, but they were, we were lumping the cells together. All lymphocytes were one, just one class. It was just lymphocytes. We then actually able to identify T cells and B cells. That's when I got interested. But then their T cells are not all the same and identifying subclasses of T cells actually gave you a value so this, this T cell is essential for giving help. This T cell is essential for killing the tumor. This B cell is producing antibody. And these are the cells that are regulated. I mean, these, these, these were a major advance. We could in fact precisely define the cell that can help and cell that can suppress, the cell can tolerate. That was actually made major advance, actually separating these cells into smaller groups. And we can now see each cell. The second is the evolution, the molecular evolution, molecular biology. That once you had cells, we wanted to know the molecules. And I will give you an example that we were calling these, everybody had this supernatant from a lymphocytes that would help T cells grow. And it was called T cell growth factor. What was it? And everybody was calling this entity a different name. When we cloned the gene, we identified this was interleukin-2 and everybody else was calling it by a different name. So we could now give it a name that this is a genome sequence, this is the interleukin-2, and all these functions that were ascribed to all different phenomena is because of this. That was a major advance. Then you could see that the Human Genome Project, that once you identified the interleukin-2 
and we know some people make more, some people get less. Where is it located? The human genome product was a huge advance that we know exactly precisely where the gene is. Then came GWAS analysis, where you could hit the polymorphism, genetic associations, and you can say, oh, here in genome, there's a hot spot that gives you enhanced susceptibility or resistance to disease. So all these things actually help together to push the field forward faster than we can identify not only phenomena, we can identify the cells, we can identify subclass of cells, we can identify the molecule, we can ascribe functions, and then we can identify the polymorphisms in GWAS. And we can say this disease associated with this polymorphism in this particular cytokine or a receptor. So these were all major advances in the field. And that has actually brought us here today. I really appreciate that, that detailed overview. I think it's amazing how you were able to categorize the specific steps and the focus on the field. Thank you again, Vijay. Uh, as a follow-up question, as we're now in today in current standards, I I'd love to get an overview before we dive into your own work specifically. What do you think have been some of the greatest applications thus far that have really been enabled by immunotherapies overall? I mean, 20 years ago, in fact, I uh, was with a group of my friends and uh, we were all from different fields. Some were neuroscientists and some were immunologists and some were cell biologists. And they would often make fun of immunology saying that, oh, what does immunology exactly do? And what have you done for modern medicine? And we will often say vaccines. He says vaccines were not developed by immunologists. I mean, they were there even before immunology was there. But you can't say the same thing today about immunology. In fact, if you look at all these immunotherapies that have been developed, I mean, for the autoimmune diseases, you have a cytokine immunotherapies, you can have anti-TNFs, and you can anti IL-17s, anti-IL-23, each one of doing spectacular effects in affecting the disease. And then you have cancer immunotherapy. Look at what, what is what is doing to cancer. It's an arm of the therapies that is actually used now in by clinics all the time. So, I mean, we can't, nobody can actually now say that, well, immunology doesn't do anything. And now we have um, all the monoclonal antibodies that were made. You can look at all the large molecules, how it transformed the therapeutics application that you can make a singular engine-specific monoclonal antibody. And I think in, in near future, 50, if not more, of the therapies will really be based on monoclonal antibodies or antibodies. So actually it's a contribution of immunology to the field and how it has transformed the way we practice medicine today. The contributions have been fantastic and it's amazing to hear from your own words, Vijay, thank you. Thanks to your own contributions specifically within your own work, in your own words, limiting the darkness, maybe uh, shining a light uh, on some new areas. You've been credited with the discovery of the Tim family of molecules, TH17 and other helper T cell subsets. The applications of immunology technologies, like you mentioned, have not only advanced the field of research, but also impacted patients in the clinic. Could you give us an overview of the Kushru lab and characterize how you're systematically developing technologies to advance the field of immunology? So the, in our lab, because I think of my interest in uh, self-tolerance, I got very interested in autoimmune diseases, especially autoimmune disease of CNS. And initially we made a lot of mice, transgenic mice by transgenesis. And these mice are now the gold standard. In every lab you go that study autoimmunity of the CNS, they will use the mice that we generated at some point of time. 
And then we did initial autoimmune disease model. And then we also stumbled across saying that the, some of the hypotheses we had were not quite correct. And we identified that the Th1 cells were not the ones inducing autoimmune diseases. And we, along with others, uh, I should credit a number of other labs were thinking that if it's not an infant gamma producing T cell, what cells are producing, in fact, inducing autoimmune disease? And we and others actually identified these IL-17 producing T cells that are at the size of tissue inflammation. They are in psoriatic lesions. They are in Shogun syndrome. In fact, number one transcript in the CNS, Larry Stanman found out that was IL-17. And uh, this led to the discovery of these IL-17 producing T cells. It put these, I used to call them THIL-17 because I didn't know what to call them. And I didn't even be presumptuous saying that they are a different subset. So I said, call them. In fact, if earlier we called them THIL-17 cells. And somebody made a typographical error and actually dropped IL out of it. And they got, they got renamed or rechristened as TH-17 cells. This has been uh, one of the... Uh, wonderful discoveries that was done uh, in my lab, and I shouldn't take credit all myself. There were a lot of people looking for these cells. And uh, we have credited for the showing that these two cytokines together will induce differentiation of TH17 cells. So part of the lab actually works on TH17 cells. And also other T cell subsets, in fact, we developed a regimen to induce differentiation of multiple different T cell subsets. We identified the differentiation pathways for IL-10 producing T cells. We differentiated differentiation pathway for IL-9 producing T cells. And again, TH17 cells. And there are umpteen colors and combination of differentiation pathway, which don't even, we don't even talk about because there are all the shades of different cytokines that come together. So that was TH17 cells. And in fact, we also discovered TIM3 and TIM family of genes. And that was, and the first paper was published in 2002, where uh, we went on because we thought TH1 cells were the ones that were inducing autoimmunity or tissue inflammation. And I wanted a way to go and pluck these cells from the tissues, but there was no way to figure out which one is the TH1 cells and which one is the TH2 cell. These were the only two cells known at the time. And then we went on an antibody screen and we generated 20,000 monoclonal antibodies and screened them against TH1 and TH2 cells. And we found four different monoclonal antibodies and took six months. And two of those monoclonal antibodies identified this new molecule called TIM3. And we cloned the gene with uh, Gordon Freeman, uh, who is at the Dana Farber Cancer Institute. And it actually identified a whole family of genes uh, called TIM family of genes. And what's actually, if there are students uh, or early postdocs listening to this podcast, is that after three years worth of work, identifying a new gene, we wrote the paper all excited, submitted to a really top class journal, and it didn't get even reviewed, came back. And the gene was, the plasmid was called A211. And we didn't, it wasn't called TIM3 at the time. I basically said the A211 is a novel gene expressed on infant gamma producing CD4 and CD8 T cells. And the paper came back, and without even going out for review. And we were all depressed, including my postdocs. And uh, then we talked to Gordon Freeman and, and Gordon said, you made a, one of the biggest mistakes is that you needed to give it a cute name. And we changed A211 to TIM3 and submitted the paper to nature and rest is history. That's how the TIM3 was given the name of 
because it wasn't accepted to a top tier journal and we changed the name and it just went in. So this is a lesson in my own life and in the history of science is that it has, you have to be able to communicate effectively so that the people, it catches the imagination that there's a new molecule, new gene, and there's a name to it. So my lab now actually, besides the transgenesis and mating models and uh, TH17 cells and uh, tumor family of genes, is also very interested in, because of the neuroscience background, that we are looking at how the immune system and nervous system communicate to each other. And it's actually a fascinating field because immune system is not restricted to any particular organ. It goes everywhere. So it's actually a fascinating field that we're working on. Okay. Fantastic. And I, I'm honestly blown away by the addition on the generation of Genesis of the name. It's, 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 it's certainly a lesson to be, to be said. And I honestly, that's just amazing. I mean, while, while we're on Tim three, I, I mean, the, the subject itself has been fascinating because of the therapy itself. I mean, your lab was the first to describe this family of Tim cells and identified as kind of a, a standout Tim three in particular as an inhibitory receptor expressed in T cells. I mean, which is now being exploited for cancer immunotherapy. As we're talking about pioneering new fields, being able to categorize themselves and, and promote that to the broader life sciences community, as someone yourself, Vijay, who has been a champion in this and being able to articulate and, and pioneer and promote new fields. I'd be curious from your own perspective, can you share a bit more about how you think about the governing dynamics involved when developing therapies to impact immunologic diseases itself? I mean, any guiding principles or philosophies that you can share with our audience, maybe perhaps yeah. a frame of mind that helps guide your approach to the field itself? So I personally put very high emphasis on what is the question? I mean, a lot of people uh, drive their science by technology or a new cool tool. But end of the day, if you want to invest your time and energy doing science, you have to identify what is the question. So I gave you example of identifying TIM3 because we were trying to identify a molecule that can be on cell surface and can distinguish an infant gamma producing TH1 CD8 or CD4 T cells from TH2 cells. It was never done before. And idea was that can we use a tool or technology to pull, pull the cell up and then sell out or delete it to affect autoimmunity. So my aim always has been is that ask the question that is important. Then you can look at the technology tools, innovation, thinking to solve the question. Bigger the question, if you are able to solve it, bigger the impact. And this is probably an old fashioned thinking. And you can see that people who really emphasize only tools and technologies when I'm doing, was doing PhD, the only technology that were available at the time was ELISA and immunohistochemistry. PCR, single cell RNA, none of this was invented. But ability to ask questions never goes away. The questions will always remain. And if I had to say only one thing is that really choose the right question to ask. If you choose the right question, the answer that will come up will be fantastic. You will solve a bigger problem. I think that's fantastic. And, and speaking specifically to how your lab approaches questions and, and solves it, I, I think it's a fantastic frame of reference that I, I hope our listeners and other folks can uh, take into their own labs or just continue on themselves. 
really appreciate your, your time discussing the breadth and overview of the Kutru Lab. I, I do want to pass it over to Chris for a quick halftime. We like to keep things a little bit shaken up in the middle and do a bit of rapid fire questions here about how you see the future of the space and then predict the future. So I'm going to pass over to Chris here. Thanks again, Jay. Thank you, Drew. And where's the Jack? To kick things off in the rapid fire, let's start with a speculative question and ask, like in physics, do you believe that in biology, there's a grand unifying theory we're still working towards and hopefully one day going and realize? I don't think so because it's far too complex and interconnected. At the end, there may be something, but right now it doesn't seem so. Not going to disagree with you on that. Sounds great to get some confirmation from an expert. If you could wave a magic wand, what is the single biggest linchpin that, in your opinion, is holding back the field of immunology that you would absolutely love to unlock? So like in chemistry, we had the periodic table of each element. We would like to have the periodic table of life. In fact, it will help us solve many problems, interactions, what they combine together, what they become. The periodic table of life. I would absolutely love to explore that. But for now, let's help fill in the blank for our audience. Immunotherapies will reach their full potential when... All basic principles have been identified. In fact, we will study the application of these immunotherapies in areas that they have never reached. I'm going to dive in closer there for a second. When you say areas they've never reached, I, I, I will give you an example, is that TIM3 being exploited for cancer is a checkpoint molecule. And we find that TIM3 is expressed on microglial cells in the brain. And when you delete it, you can in fact affect the development of Alzheimer's disease in mice. So if you understand the basic biology, even the immunotherapies that are kindly available or the new ones that are developed, if you understand the basic biology, you can develop not only new immunotherapies, you can repurpose what we already have. I love that. So taking it in that same vein of sort of understanding and recognizing the basic guiding principles in some of the science, what do you think are maybe the most common misconceptions within your field? You know, one of the major misconceptions in our field is that, and you talk to any of the young people and even the junior faculty, and most people think that, and this is more for the development of young faculty, is they think that the, if you have enough money, you will solve all the problems. Money does not solve problems. It's essential, but there's something more that's needed, and that's the thinking. The misconception, especially I'm just targeting this for the younger faculty and postdocs and students, money is important. It is important to get things done, but there's something more that's needed. And that's actually building groups, expertise, and thinking. And I think even beyond faculty, that's also phenomenal advice for startups who are starting and building often not uh, with the most abundant amount of cash. It's really great advice. So something that I think we're all an incredible fan of about your work in particular is your lab's accessibility and approachability. You're providing not only amazing and informative sources from the immunology fields that include your research page that direct individuals towards better practices, but also a lab cookbook. And during the pandemic, you created your own newsletter that was published called The Creature Times, helping connect uh, among other labs, helpful tips, new recipes, book recommendations, lab photos, and various other fun and informative subjects. For someone who's been 
leading and really at the forefront of their field. And he's been able to promote and educate others on their research. We've talked about this to a degree so far, but what advice would you give to individuals at the frontier of new innovation, seeking to evangelize and promote their work as you do? So just enjoy the beauty of science. In fact, have a good eye for good science. Learn to actually ask good questions and then be at the best communicator, both in writing, speaking and teaching. And if you do that, everything else will fall in place. In fact, being a scientist and in science is incredible. It is a privilege to be in this and society supports us. And it is an incredible profession that you are following your passion. It's, it's like a, a hobby. And the people we interact with every day while having coffee, are we actually having, we're looking at data. We are into an unknown. We are probing unknown. Nobody has gone there before. It's hard on one time, but exciting, exhilarating on the other side. And just enjoy it. Enjoy it the fullest. And there's not a single day when I'm driving to the lab and I'm saying, oh my God, I'm going to meet with this guy. There'll be great data. I'll... And my daughter, as I used to drop her at school, and she would often say, dad, I have never seen you so excited going to the, when you're going to the lab. And dads of other girls don't really like going to work. And I said, this is the, what we have. I mean, this is an incredible profession. Just enjoy it the fullest. That's such a phenomenal mindset. And I am excited to, I think, have Drew dive into it a little bit deeper as we talk about academic entrepreneurship in our next section. Thank you, Jack. Of course, and a direct realization of your work and excitement, we can see Vijay as the amazing translational impact that you've had on the community and then going forward. Building off your pioneering work in immunology, you've had the opportunity to translate your research and inform some of the world's most transformative companies, such as Point Therapeutics, Costim, that was acquired by Novartis, Potenza, acquired then by Estellas, Tisona, by Gilead and, and Celsius, and, and now Bicara. As a serial entrepreneur, how do you think about translating technologies from academia itself? You see, it goes back to identifying the questions, the need, and the gap. And although my lab works in the basic sciences to identifying the mechanisms of disease or tolerance, but I always think about, does this observation help in any way solve a problem in a disease? Can it be exploited as a therapeutic or a treatment for a human disease? And that's actually being a basic scientist in a clinical department gives you a new look or new eyes to look at the problem. And often you can see that Howard Weiner and David Hafler were there at the department. He says, oh, that's well and good. But what does it do in the human disease, which is already on? You can protect a mouse from development autoimmunity, but autoimmunity is already on. How would you turn it off? And that gives you a new outlook to look at the problem. You are not trying to block initiation of disease because nobody knows that I'm going to get an MS or autoimmunity of any kind, but autoimmunity is on. How do you turn it off once the, all the locks have been broken? And it is an interesting mindset 
that the how can you really look at the problem not only from the basic science point of view but that is, may not exist in the clinic and how do you turn turn it off in the clinic when the disease is already on so that gives you a new perspective to look at the problem of course 100 percent. and while we're thinking of mindsets and mentalities both through your own lab your own process through entrepreneurship academia I'm, I'm curious at interrogating uh, your, your certain mindsets, Vijay, to translate that to other folks or other PIs that are listening. Would you have advice for PIs seeking to develop an entrepreneurial culture of their own within their own labs? When I started doing science and doing something like what we do today was not really accepted. The science was supposed to be pure and not touched by money or anything else. And last 20, 25 years has been a total shift because at the end of the day, our research is funded by taxpayers. And in fact, there are so many diseases for which there's no treatment. How can our observations actually help a patient? That's actually the ultimate goal. And if it does, it's the greatest thing we have done. Not only have we done a basic observation, but we have made a difference in somebody's life. And going back to Joseph Lister and carbolic acid, that was on better than that. But I don't think the young PIs are actually trained at any stage in their career. How do you actually, if you have a new a novel observation, it may make a difference in forming a dove or it's an interesting target for a disease. How do you go about it? I learned it step by step myself by doing a lot of mistakes. But we do at, at Harvard Medical School and the Brigham Women's Hospital, we do have a lot of support available. And the moment you think of an observation, you identify a target. If you think it says application in a human disease, see to it that you have patented it. You have built a portfolio of patents. And the moment you patent it, even if you don't exploit it yourself, somebody else will because it is protected. And a lot of drug companies would not go into an area that's unprotected, but it also gives you a potential to do it yourself or in a collaboration with somebody else. So I think there has to be some number one mind change, which is happening slowly. It has happened and academia and industry have to work together. If we are really serious about treating patients with these incurable diseases, but above all, there has to be funding for doing something like this because we don't get enough funding to really translate. You know that if it's, it's not going to give you next paper sometimes because you are really trying to see the same phenomenon in humans. If you block it with 10, micro, 10 milligrams of antibody, 100 milligrams, it doesn't make any difference to a paper. But there is no money for doing those little, little actually steps. And there has to be funding for that. And that there has to be a, some sort of initial funding from either from the institution or from the VC community to see that this is a right target and the drug or the inhibitor that you made or the antibody made is the right antibody because it may not be. And does it do what it's supposed to do? All of those should be done. And this is a training that we should require all our PhD students to have. I really appreciate that shout out. Um, it, it's interesting from your own perspective, as you see this as an educational problem, some, something that young PIs need to be informed on. I really appreciate that. I, I'd love to 
ask a little bit deeper as well. C can you speak to anything else that you believe is, is really missing from the academic entrepreneurship ecosystem today? Other shout outs, things that we as a community should be striving towards? Yeah, I think there has to be, number one, it has to be the change in mindset that the two systems can't live apart. And there's nothing wrong if an academic lab is doing the work for industry. It's still looked down upon. In fact, if I discovered, once I discovered Tim Family of Genes, but I can't take money from any company to work on Tim Family of Genes in my own lab because there's a conflict of interest. But who else will know more about the family than me? So are we, are we losing something by having these hard walls? I completely believe that this conflict of interest has to be, in fact, completely protected. There should not be conflict. But are we building these walls that are too rigid? If you don't tap into my resources of knowledge and ed that I know about Tim Family of Genes, you are missing something. So I think we have artificially created these walls whereby we should protect the conflict of interest rules. I completely believe in this. You shouldn't be benefited, but we are also actually losing something that's even more important and precious is that the, we are delaying the translation of this research into real drugs. And uh, I think it is something has to be looked into very carefully by both the academia, national, the funding agencies, like National Institute of Health, and also by industry. How do we protect the conflict of interest rule, but get the most out of a researcher to make a drug? Well, that would be a fascinating concept. I mean, being able to merge tech transfer offices, bring the NIH and in, bring industry in, and bring that all to the support of academic labs. I mean, a future like that would be fascinating. Uh, find, finding a way to pull that together. Continuing this, this conversation, may, maybe as a, as a last question, before we get to our closing thoughts here, Vijay, I, I'd love to just take a moment to dive deeper into a few of your companies. You've co-founded multiple immunotherapy companies uh, approaching innovative approaches to cancer in specific. Celsius, Picara, Potenza, to name a few. I mean, for those who may have missed, by the way, earlier this month, Picara Therapeutics just announced their oversubscribed 108 million series B round, um, really to advance their clinical stage pipeline of dual action biologics to treat cancer. I mean, once again, Vijay, congratulations to you and the team as well. The potential upside of treatments using engineered T cells to approach cancer are, are huge. And it's amazing that some of these companies are being realized and they're being pushed to the clinic. From your own perspective, Vijay, I, what do you think about the future of public health if Celsius, Bicara, and Potenza, some of these immunotherapy companies do have the potential to be fully realized? You know, it's, it's probably going to change the way we look at cancer. And, you know, targeted therapies are good, but the problem is that you give a drug, the tumor comes back, and you have a tumor-free life, maybe six months, and then you are, and new mutations come in, there's nothing you can do about it. The cancer immunotherapy, on the other hand, has a lower response rate, but there's a long, long tail, so to say. And those people who are immune will have protection for a long period of time. So cancer immunotherapies don't work for, for everybody. And if you look at PD-1 and anti-CTLF-4, ipilimumab and nivolumab, if you combine them together, the best you can get is 30 to 40%. Why not 100%, right? And see, I mean, it's the same principle. 
So there is something that's needed to reach the 100% wealth. Just imagine that it's like when we discovered anti-TNFs, very good for rheumatoid arthritis, but it treats only 50% patients. Then you use anti-TNFs for psoriasis, you use IBD. It does a little bit of something in psoriasis. It's not something you write home about, but it's actually better than nothing. And now comes anti-IL-17 therapeutics, right? And it is the miracle drug for psoriasis. Here, what you've done is you have hit the right pathogenic mechanism with the right drug. And you get passing 90 score, 90% lesions are gone within six weeks, right? Anti-IL-23, anti-IL-17, this is what it actually is. This is, I don't want to give the drug names because each company has a different name, but I'm just giving generic anti-IL-17, anti-IL-23. Same thing is going to happen in cancer. Right now, we are putting anti-PD-1 and anti-CTLA-4 into everything. Yeah, it does something. And some, some places gets better. Some places, yeah, it's just, you still, still actually do a response. What's going to happen with these new companies and with new drugs? We are going to actually combine the right cancer with the right drug therapy. In some cases, you may have to use two or a bispecific. This is what Bicara is doing. And it's actually the, it's, this is public information, is that the, one of the top drugs is EGFR and, and, and TGF-beta-trap, anti-EGFR, TGF-beta-trap. And it's doing wonderful things in some of the cancers which are not responding well to anti-PD-1 or anti-CTLA-4. So by having enough ammunition in your armamentarium, you can that's now begin to match the cancer with the right drug reaching the idea of what anti-IL-17 is doing to psoriasis. We may have a time when we have combined the right combinations of cancer immunotherapies that you're getting actually not 30% response rate, you're getting 100% response rate. And that's what we're working towards. It's amazing, exciting to see that side. Uh, Vijay, and I, I appreciate the overview or look into the future, what this is going to look like. Tying this back to your work around academic entrepreneurship, around this section specifically, with the success of some of these companies that, that you've discussed and the car being pushed through the, the pipeline itself, I mean, how has the success of these companies itself in, informed how you think about building new technologies within your lab specifically? You know, I, one of the things is it's humbling rather than actually saying, well, I did uh, so much because not everything works everywhere. And I will give you an example of Antitim 3. Antitim 3, we made a company called Costum and the antibody is named, it was company was sold to Novartis and Novartis made the Antitim 3 antibody and was named Sabatulumab and Sabatulumab actually comes from the name from a student who was in my lab who first cloned the gene with Gordon Freeman. And it's a, so a student's name, actually, she worked, went with, with the custom to Novartis. And, uh, and one of the best things you could think about that here is a person who knows so much about from the discovery, from making the antibody, right? And then goes to, goes to Novartis. And we were thinking that it will be like an adjunct to PD-1 in certain diseases, like melanoma, non-smosalaka, that's, it's working there. But it looks as best application might be in myeloid tumors, because it looks like that AML and MDS, the TIM3 is expressed on these tumor cells that form the nucleus or stem cells. So 
having understood this, that the, yeah, you may have identified a drug or a molecule. And if you look at the history of TM3, it was identified as a molecule on Th1 cells or on CD8 T cells is as a checkpoint molecule, but its application may ultimately, and we would have thought that it will be affecting the T cell exhaustion. It should be like PD1 or CTLA4, which it does. It is an adjunct in, in melanoma and in fact, non-small cell lung carcinoma. But you could see that if person is thinking that application ultimately is probably for the uh, treatment of liquid tumors, AML or MDS, and that, that's why it's showing the difference. And doesn't mean it will not affect other diseases as well. So keep your ears open. You may identify a, a molecule. In fact, the, when we first identified the molecule, we had a, a portfolio of all these patents. It was given to a big drug company to develop a drug. And within three years, they sent it back and saying that they don't see anything useful in this patent portfolio and forcing me to make our own company called Costum because our academic institution, no matter how big or how small they are, they don't have enough dollars to keep the patent portfolio going. So we were forced, that portfolio had come back and we have forced to do something. Otherwise we were not able to keep the portfolio and we made custom. And you can see now the whole thing would have died if I had not, wasn't pushing it, saying that I see something in it. So there has to be a champion who's pushing it. So it may not be the first thing that you see, the value of it. But if you keep thinking, it may have a value in something else and be useful for the treatment of human diseases. Perseverance for sure. Seems like a key trait uh, within your own lab. And and, and that focus around COSTIM is, is certainly fascinating. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Vijay. I want to pass it off to Chris, uh, save, save some time here to close up the episode. Chris, yeah. feel free to take it away. Thank you, Drew. And as he said, before we come to a close, a few final questions just to wrap things up. So to start, one question we love to ask our guests comes from Nobel laureate Dennis Gabor, who said, the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Today, you've given us a great retrospective. You've talked a lot about your own research and the advances as well, as well as done a little bit of predicting the future. But we'd love to ask, can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? Yeah, it's actually interesting. I was reading it. I, I, had, I had heard the quote before. We can't predict what's in the, in the stock, what's coming up, but to me, inventing the future means that you invent yourself. You really, in fact, invent in a way that you are ready for the future, the tools, the technologies, your own mental makeup, that when you see something that you can recognize it, have you really trained yourself both intellectually, physically, mentally, resource-wise, allocation-wise, it allow you to invent the future. And if you're mm -hmm. not prepared for it, you will lose the future. So you can't predict it, but you can invent yourself and train yourself and put together the tools within yourself that you can invent the future for yourself. And I st strongly believe in it, strongly believe in it. In fact, when I first came to the United States and looking at the high paced life, that I didn't think that I will in fact be able to survive the pace. And I learned how to meditate in the United States. It gave me the calmness that when I see something and I can see it. 
So it's also building yourself to invent the future. You, does, it answer, does it answer your question? Phenomenally. Diving in uh, and actually touching on a point you just shared, as a first-generation American myself, I would love to hear your thoughts if you have any other advice for those of us or those similar to us who are maybe immigrants or first-generation individuals and how we can best interact in this I don't want to just call it clashing of cultures, but this mix of cultures and lives. You know, it's a, the country, United States, I just love it. Okay. But it's also a shock when you first arrive here. It's culturally different. Everything is fast paced, straight, and there is no, it don't sweeten things unnecessarily, but they're incredible resources. I have never seen any place in the world that if you have something to give, that the country and the people around you will value it. But how do you deal with these cultures that are coming from all different things, right? And how do you make use of it for your own personal growth? And you can deal with it. And that's why I think, as I took up, I started becoming physically fitter. I started taking up meditation. I do it every day in the morning. I interact better with people because without interacting with people, it's not possible to grow. And in fact, I was rather introvert when I first came. And in fact, the truth is in the mean. So each culture has seen something in their own way and they have their own idea of how it is. And ultimately, if you are actually trying to identify truth, it is, I think, truth is in the mean, but everybody is coming together and contributing to it. It's, it's like that statistician who asked everybody how many jelly beans are in the jar. And everybody gave the number. And ultimately, the true number was the mean of everybody. So similarly, what the United States does, not only does it give you incredible resources, it's uh, work ethics. And if you want to contribute, there'll be resources behind you. But you got to get used to it, to make use of those resources. If you don't, you're done. I think uh, being a first generation immigrant, I absolutely I have gone to so many places in the world. And I don't say it, including I love my native country, India, being to Australia. I have been to Europe, all over the place. If you get used to being in the United States, there's no country like it. I think that's a strong message that I and Others similar to us will absolutely be learning from and taking forward. Thank you for sharing from your experience. Pivoting back a little bit more to the life sciences, would love your thoughts as, and I know you, as you said earlier, we can't predict, but would love your thoughts on what you characterize as the grand challenges facing the life sciences today. It's the grand challenges is that we come with ideas, we identify a target. We make an inhibitor, either a large molecule or small molecule, and we go ahead and test the hypothesis. And at least 80 to 90% of the time, it fails. It is the unpredictability. Is And how do we make it more predictable? And that is the challenge. And that's why it comes my idea of this periodic table of life, because we are not looking at the whole periodic table. We are looking at our own strand at one thing, one time. And that is goes and but in the in the human being or an organism, 
that one molecule is not talking to each other and only that strand, it's actually talking to everybody. It's the unpredictability. And how do we make it predictable is our biggest challenge. Because if we make it predictable, the billions of dollars that we put down the drain, testing an idea hypothesis, it will become a little more predictable. We will not have as many failures. I'm honestly just really hoping that sometime soon we hear yourself coming out with an announcement. I'm working with these phenomenal folks and peers to work on starting uh, a program to create this sort of periodic table of biology. I would love to understand, as you're pointing out, we're starting to dive deeper and biology is, I feel, becoming simultaneous, more, more specialized, but also more interdisciplinary but it's not comprehensive in the ways you're describing. And I think that change is something we can all look forward to. But for now, let's flash forward and build on that challenge you just described. And hopefully at some point in the near future, we'll start to work towards that vision to a degree or at least shift our perspective. So let's take a step forward and it's 2050. Can you paint us a picture of where you think biotech will be at that time? So I think the computational technologies and cognitive science will be at the forefront, forefront. We will have cracked some of this periodic table of life by using computational tools and looking at what the interactions are. Who's talking to whom, under what circumstances, over time and space, which is our challenge. These tools and technologies will allow us to identify new targets without even having to do an experiment. We will be designing drugs based on the models, not on the crystal structure, okay? And we'll be predicting the off-target effects of those drugs and those molecules without having to do a single experiment. We will be saying, here is the target for this disease. It is interacting with these different nodes and each node is having these effects. If you go a little lower, you will have less side effects and you will have less off targets effect. And this will is the model for the crystal structure. And this is the designer drug that will go in there. That's my prediction. That's what we're going to go. Oh, I wish we could spend another hour or two diving into the steps needed to get there. As we come to a close here, Vijay, we'd love to ask how you think about the grand impact of your research and the legacy you hope to leave within the life sciences. My biggest legacy is the people I trained. Those are the people who are going to carry the torch to something beautiful and useful. And I'm so proud of them. And they come and they have given me so much joy. And it's in addition to all the work that on the discovery of Tim family of genes at T-cell differentiation, making all these biotech companies and all the drugs, I think my biggest legacy is going to be the people who come out of my lab and do wonderful things the society. And if they're carrying forward the mindset you shared with us today, there's no doubt they will. But having been an inspiration for so many people, including those like you've just described the members of your lab and those who you've trained, we'd love to flip it around and ask who inspires you and why? So I, so there are some old, I mean, uh, from the history, from the Joseph Lister, seeing his first picture, Mary Curie, first woman with all that was against her, what she did amazing Louis Pasteur and which they thought everybody thought he was a hoax and how he persevered. And, but I will tell you is that the, my current really heroes are two women. 
or still have a lot of work all the time in science. Peppa Merrick, I don't know whether you know her, Laurie Glimpshire. And time when which I see my daughter struggling, building a family, being in science, being a doctor. How did they do it? And every time they got up there, gave a talk, just inspired me, just inspired me. In fact, it was amazing listening to Lottie Glimpshire cloning Tibet and Peppa Merrick talk about the MLS. Amazing. And very close to my home, the two women I dearly love, my wife and my daughter, I, oh my God, how much energy do they have? When I am gone and they're still working, says, oh, Vijay, let's do this. Oh, what about this? I mean, they inspire me in spite of all that they have to do. I mean, we really should be grateful. This human race should be grateful to all women. I already see with my grandson how much a kid requires the attention to grow. And if it wasn't for them, the human race wouldn't exist. Let's give them their due, respect them, love them. And those are my inspirations. In fact, in science, current living, really, Peppa Merrick, Laurie Glumshire, wonderful people, take care of the, give their, their pupil, help them. And right in my home, my daughter and my wife, amazing, amazing people. I can't think of a better way to wrap up the episode. Would just love to ask how our audience and our listeners can learn more about you and your work. The best way to do it is actually, uh, if there's a paper, it's always my lab members, in fact, force it to put it on the, they do it themselves. It's on the Twitter and we put it also, it's published and podcasts like this actually get to a larger audience. In fact, I have started a podcast with, that will be about Tim three and discovery of Tim three, which we haven't completed yet. So some of these podcasts, I will do few podcasts on the discoveries of Tim family of molecules and T cell differentiation and neuroimmunology. So that's how we can get to me. But if people want to read my papers, they're up there. And, and I'm I accessible a lot by email. Anybody writes to me email, if you have already a question, I will respond. And Vijay, we want to thank you so much for an absolutely fantastic episode. We're very grateful for your time and we look forward to having you back on the show again soon. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Thank you both, both of you, Chris and Drew, for all your time. It was uh, it really is going back to life and how would we grew. It's actually, I had never recounted it before. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.